Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 144, The Call of the Wild. Today, on the disco, we get wild as we discuss Jack London's classic portrait of the unforgiving and brutal life of being a dog during the Klondike Gold Rush. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! Ooh. Hey! Uh, did you? Oh. Wow. Well, a <laughs> I was not, frankly, expecting a howl out of Julia. That was a surprise. You guys don't even know me. You don't even know. <laughs> I, sh- I guess not. Jeez. I, sh- I should have gone through and found one of my old wolf shirts from the 90s. Oh, was- oh yeah. yeah. Now, now is the time to get that photo of you with that wolf. Oh, you're right. on the internet. Yes. That's, that's going along with this episode. Oh, perfectly. God. Yeah. Or, the, or the cookies that my student made of you with the wolf. <laughs> Oh God! Just for for our listeners, uh, yeah. So I, when I was a teenager and uh, on a TV show, and very much into wolves because it was the '90s and the wolves were, for whatever reason, like the animal to be rescued in the '90s. That I was so to into wolves. You were too. into this too, yes. Oh, yeah. I was, and of course, there I was were in t-shirts. a fraternity at the time, so I yeah, was not you were ignoring <laughs> animals. Uh, but there was there was also like a lot of t-shirts that had wolves that said the strong survived. Do you guys oh, remember? Yeah. There was like the yeah. And so since my last name was strong, I always had one of those t-shirts. Sure. Uh, and they were always huge. Like why were clothes so big in the 90s? Like you know, they basically go down to my knees. Uh, but, but yeah, and and the word got out so some some teen magazine, one of the Tiger Beat or Teen Pop, <laughs> they used to, you know, call me and have me go do these photo shoots and one time they had me do a photo shoot with a real live wolf and i was so excited to meet a wolf and take this photo which now is endlessly embarrassing to see on the internet over and over again (laughs) floppy haired rider with the wolf and and rider in the photo looks pretty uncomfortable (laughs) well it was a little intimidating i have to say it's like this like barely trained wild animal and they like took us out into the canyons of uh a laurel canyon like somewhere some park somewhere you know it was like sit sit but you know it's a wolf at any moment it could try and bite my head off Uh, yeah man Oh, at, at any moment, he could have smelled your copious amounts of moose and just been like, yeah, I'll eat that. I'll eat that. I'll take that down. I was the kind of teen who would have bought that teen beat and put that photo on my wall for the wolf. <laughs> it could have been anyone. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was yep. the point in Julia's life me. where she was making the slow transition from horse girl to wolf lady. You know what? That's 100% correct. I was excited to tell you guys this. But uh, I also read um, this book. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have read it. Julie of the Wolves. Um, That was a great kids book about a girl who lives among a pack of wolves. Uh, And I had I adopted a wolf you know to save them and i had like photos of wolves all over my room wolves horses you know okay the gamut (laughs) see for me it was see for me it was like okay it was it was werewolves when i was like seven (laughs) or eight 
And, and that was due to Teen Wolf and Thriller and American Werewolf in London a little bit later. And then and then that morphed into real live wolves. Oh, and then also there was the the journey of Natty Gant. Do you guys remember that? like Disney movie about a no. girl and a wolf. Tra- oh, it's a classic. It's, it's actually a, a pretty underrated, uh, beautiful film, but, um, yeah. So there, <laughs> there's a, there was a lot of wolf influences on my life at that point. And then, and then I got into, yeah, saving the wolves cause they were reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone. Do you guys remember that? Whole yeah. Right. I remember oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I like, you know, was a big supporter of all these organizations where you could like adopt a wolf and like help pay for wolves to be reintegrated into the Yellowstone. And oh, man. Yeah. I love wolves. I'm Me not too. really sure why now. But... I uh, I got into Hungry Like the Wolf when I was in eighth grade. Um, this that's is about as stretch. close as I got. I just always had a lot of dogs. I never had any wolves. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, that so that's the prime difference is you guys were trying to save the animals. In my case, the animals lived with me, but they just weren't wild. They were tame. <laughs> they were and they were and they were collies and things like that. So, did you read a lot of Jack London? Oh and God, other dog and wolf books. Well, here's the thing, Julia, and I'm sure Ryder recalls this as well. If you grow up in California, all you read is Jack London because yeah. Jack huh. London is. As part of the culture of Northern California as the Grateful Dead are. Yes. Um, wow. Yeah. So true. there's Jack London Square in Oakland, which is a huge shopping district. Um, I mean, just the whole region is... He spent uh, a lot of time in Sonoma County where I grew yeah. up. And, and, and in fact, he has a, a, a book. One of his novels is called Valley of the Moon, which is what Sonoma means. Um, so a lot of stuff takes place in Sonoma. And yeah, there's all these... Yeah. There, there's a ton. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So... Jack London is a huge part of growing up. I don't, I don't know if it still is. I'm sure it probably still is. But even from like kindergarten on, you're reading um, children's book versions of Jack London stories. Like, yep. We're going to talk about Call of the Wild here in a second. But when I was a kid, I, I read a, a Call of the Wild picture book um, in first or second grade, something like that, that, that we were taught. So it, it, it was always just a, a big... Um, a big part of it. Yeah. Well, um, what's interesting about that for me is that I don't think I'd ever actually read any Jack London. I must, I remember we went on a family vacation in the car and listened to White Fang on audiobook right. when I was a kid. And that mm-hmm. stuck with me. And I remember, cause it's like, that one is first person wolf, I believe. Right. Uh, and so when yeah. we, uh, but I had never read Call of the Wild and I haven't read White Fang or any other of his books but you, since. You've read, You've read To Build a Fire, though, haven't you? No, that's the thing. Like, oh, really? It, yeah, that's a great and I, story. It, yeah, now I really want it. Classic. I mean, because this sitting down to read this for uh, to read Call of the Wild for this episode, I realized like, oh, I actually have never read this, even though I I just had absorbed Jack Londonness through the culture. Right. <laughs> but interestingly, like, yeah, once I got to college, all the all the California authors that I was had sort of assumed were canon: Jack London, John Steinbeck. You know they don't really get that much sway in academia. Maybe more so no. now, but no. but back no like back, and I remember actually asking like my freshman year in college, asking a professor like, "Why aren't we reading Steinbeck? Why are we reading this Faulkner guy?" Um, you know, and, and and he gave me a sort of roundabout answer, but it was you know the basic answer was Faulkner's more he's considered better and he's considered right. more canon, and and Steinbeck is is a regional author the same way that Jack London is a regional author and. Uh, maybe unfairly so. Uh, that's something we should probably talk about. But um, 
Yeah, so reading this, reading The Call of the Wild was the first time I feel like I've ever actually sat down and given Jack London some serious consideration. Well, and Jack wow. London, in in a way, was uh, was sort of like Dickens in a sense that he was a serialized writer, you know. So right. he was write he was a he was the John Grisham of his time, you know. He he was writing for the the magazines and the newspapers and stuff. Um, so very successful. Yeah, so he was very successful and uh, and read by you know young boys and things like that. Um, That's the thing. It's more like a lifestyle brand. Than, yes, uh, it totally are, you know is. What I mean? It's Rah. like, I feel like London, it, 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 similar to Hemingway, he has this sort of like masculine, you know, boxing and wilderness. I don't know. There's something about him that you just absorb in pop culture in a way that other authors you don't, you know, that they don't have the same, yeah. The, with Jack London, you just, um, you just want to be wearing a jacket on the, in the snow and <laughs> type, typing in your typewriter with a pipe hanging out of your mouth. You know, it's like right. this whole machismo thing that, uh, I don't know, it goes beyond the, the work itself in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, now, for, so the the challenge that I had this week is that, um, as you guys both know, my my dog died this week, um, and so mm. reading Call of the Wild on, in the week that my dog died um, was both challenging and also sort of like, well, I don't think that's what Scout felt. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a little anthropomorphized yeah like at, like at first so. i was like i was like well this is gonna be hard and i'd i'd read call of the wild many times before like i said when i was younger but i hadn't read it as an adult in many years and so um my dog died um a week ago uh from the time that we were recording this episode and um at first oh, i was timing like timing well, couldn't have been worse it, timing could not have been worse <laughs> But at first I was like, oh man, I don't know if I could read this. And then I was like, oh, this is this has all the relationship to my cocker spaniel as it does to if my chimpanzee had died. You know, like right, it's right. just you know, it's it's a completely different animal. But um the companionship of dogs and reading about the companionship of dogs and trying to understand the motivations of animals that um and as my dog Ruby just walked into the room, hi Ruby. Um that people have with dogs like that's the essence of what jack london is trying to do is you know trying to figure out this relationship but also i mean this sort of relates back to tarzan which you read not long ago that point at which the noble becomes the savage you know (laughs) um all that bullshit you know and so i'll be i'll be interested to talk about that but let me just say one thing before we talk about i want to i want to pimp a different book um so like I just said, my dog died. Um, it was a, a sudden illness and then a quick death, unfortunately. But she had had to have surgery and um, she'd gotten sick very fast. And I didn't trust this emergency vet where I live. And I have a former student who is an author now named Susie Fincham Gray. And she's a great veterinary internist. And I called her in a frenzy of sadness and fear and said, my dog is sick. I don't know what to do. And this wonderful woman, Susie Fincham Gray, took over care of my dog and had surgery performed on her and took care of her and then also helped us make the decision of, you know, what to do when it became clear that um, Scout wasn't going to get better. Um, But she has this amazing book that she wrote when she was an MFA student in my program called My Patients um, about her life in veterinary medicine. It was a, a big hit, came out a year and a half ago. And it talks a lot about her philosophy as a vet. It talks a lot about her philosophy of animal medicine and also human medicine. 
Um, but she um, she says in that book something, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's so true. And for those of you who have animals, you'll recognize this as being true. Um, she says that being a vet, you have to be both the doctor and the patient. And so often we, um, I've found, you know, in like an emergency situation at a vet's office that they are just an ATM or they treat you like an ATM. The, the, yeah. the ER does. Um, but Susie never did that, um, has never done that for me. And she helped take care of another dog. We had Minnie who was dying. Um, but she really does understand this idea that, you know, you, you need the vet to tell you what your dog is feeling. And a truly great physician does that too, you know? And so this book of hers, My Patience, um, it came out a year and a half ago. It's a wonderful book. It was a big bestseller. Um, Dr. Susie Fincham Gray, I recommend going out and getting it. She, um, she really uh, saved my, my wife, Wendy, and my life for a couple days there and, and took really good care of our dog. And so um, if you feel like you want to help someone who helped me um, pick up her book, that's my huh. pimping for the day. That's great. Yeah, I was and surprised by how much I, while I was reading The Call of the Wild, I would I would put it down and start thinking about the dogs in my life. Right. Uh, it, it, was, it was actually really effective because I, I don't have any pets right now. Um, I've been raising a son for the last four years and... Who's a little I mean, feral, I, quite frankly. Yeah, he is. He's a little wild. Uh, no, uh, but but it, it really it took me right back to my childhood because I always had animals growing up and, and dogs constantly and, and and man, it just made me miss some of some of yeah. my, my my old pets um, and uh, experiences I've had with with animals. It's it's effective I, in that way. Yeah, I've had dogs my entire life. I've I've had maybe like a two year period where I didn't have a dog in my life. Um, and it's a weird calculus that you start making. Like, I, you know, my, my dog Rube, Rube Goldberg just walked in here. And after Scout died, I was like, okay, if everything goes right, I'll have Ruby until I'm 65 years old. Will I get another dog to take me from 65 to 85? And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, I need Xanax. <laughs> I need Xanax. I need Ativan. And I need a vacation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I, I, it's yeah, it's just it's just too bad that dogs don't live the same length as humans. <laughs> they, yeah. really, they really well. There's that there's an old adage that um, that dogs only break your heart once, and that is awfully true. I mean, we thought we were going to have Scout for another three years, and um, and we didn't. So that was upsetting. I mean, the whole thing's upsetting. What about you, yeah. Julia? How what, how many pets have you had in your life? I've had only cats. And various other small animals that died very quickly once they made it into our home. Uh, <laughs> but And then we ate them. <laughs> um, I always wanted a dog very badly. Um, and I begged my parents for it. So I read Call of the Wild and White Fang. I had like a, you know, an edition that like had the gold on the edges of the pages. Right. I think my parents probably gave it to me when I was like seven um, and I read it <laughs> a million times um, and I like begged for a dog every it was like my campaign for life and they just held out they held out my entire life which I can't believe they did right um, but they my I think my mom was basically like no I'm not walking a dog uh, <laughs> so I've had a lot of cats I've been through cat death but not as an adult yet i have cats now that are like 10 
Um, and I'm really dreading it. Like it's the one chance in life, you know, we've re- not the only one, but the most common one where you like make the call, like it's on you to decide um, what happens yeah. to them. And I worked, I, I will say my first job was I was, a, I worked at a vet. I was like 16 and I would like mop the floors. Right. Um, and I saw so many of these, you know, end of life decisions and couples that would come in and or like a mom would bring in her dog after kids had gone to bed and it it was so scarring for me (laughs) Uh, but I was like like until that job I wanted to be a vet um but when we were at the when we were at the vet's office in San Diego where um where Scout had her surgery and, and we had this like we had a really PTSD inducing event where we had to drive her from Palm Springs to San Diego in the middle of the night and she could die at any minute. So that, that was fun. Um, but we got to this hospital in San Diego where Susie was taking care of scout and we were there, you know, for a long time and we saw life's rich pageant come through there. Like (laughs) there was, um, there was this, these, this poor couple brought in this great Dane that had bloat and you know, there's not much you can do in that situation. The dog is, is going to die. But there was also, this isn't funny, but it is funny. There's like this Navy SEAL looking dude. So in San Diego, it's all military out there. And this guy comes in, and he, he is very clearly like in the military. And he comes in and he's got a hamster contraption, like with the wheel and the tunnels and stuff. And he's like, uh, my hamster is stuck in here and I don't know if it's alive or dead and I can't, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so he just like, Handed them the box with all the contraptions, and they're like, "Did oh, they save the hamster?" I don't know. Oh, what a cliffhanger! But he was there all. He was there all day, and I was like, "Huh." Wow. But it was like he's like, "I don't, I don't know if it's alive or if it's dead. I can't get in there. I can't get into the tunnel." And they're like, "Okay, okay." Jesus. And so he hamsters, just hamsters only live like a year and a half or two years anyway. That's and so oh my he God. just hands over like the full hamster oh. aquarium, you know, and they're like, uh, "Okay." Uh. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we we saw so much. I mean, just in the you know, we were there over the course of a couple of days. We saw so much sadness and death, but also you know, people just having their regular um, appointments and stuff. Um, but like I was saying to Susie after, after she had, um, put Scout to sleep, um, like, how do you, how do you do this every day? And she's like, it's, I'm happy to do it for you, you know, but it's, it's always painful. It's never easy. And I was just like, oh, fuck, man. I I just don't, I don't know how you wouldn't take that home with you every single day. And, And the end result, of course, is that she is an extraordinarily compassionate and empathetic human being and she's in this job because she is the person to do this yeah you know whereas the she's people just that... making a sacrifice an emotional sacrifice for right. everybody else exactly yeah. oh man <laughs> well speaking um, of which we well hold on i want to tell i want to tell yes. one dog story i want to tell okay. one personal dog story because i had actually kind of forgotten that this happened to me until reading the call of the wild um so my you know my parents uh, i grew up in uh, in the redwood forest with lots of land. So we always had animals. We actually had a pony growing up. We had rabbits, we had uh, dogs and, and, but the, so my parents have a, an actual pet cemetery on the property. That is, uh, that act, my parents lost their dog this week too, Todd, last oh, week. God. Um, 
their their latest rescue dog. So now there's no dogs, right? I'm I'm sure my parents are going to adopt another one because it's just dog heaven up there. But the dog from my childhood <laughs> that is um the 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 tombstone that my mom made for this dog that's at, at the pet cemetery on the property. It, it's uh, our dog Cookie, and it was Cookie, the greatest dog in the world. And she really oh. was she was the greatest dog in the world. And 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 reading Call of the Wild reminded me of this one time when we. All right, so when I was 16, uh, 16 or 17, uh, you know, we used to go backpacking into the wilderness all the time with, with friends. Um, and uh, this one time we decided to go with a big group of us. There was about 12 of us, I think, going for a five or six day trip into uh, the Vantana wilderness near Big Sur. And so we, uh, we, you know, we had so much gear. We had two vans and we were all packing up and we, we, we loaded up the car and Cookie jumped in the car with us. Like she was so stoked and like ready to go. She was like, I'm coming with you. And then we were like, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're hiking into the woods. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe cookie can come with us. She can handle it. She's a dog. <laughs> so we, we rigged her a backpack so she could carry her own dog food. And she had like, you know, this backpack on and we put it on her and we tested it out and she could do it. We're like, yeah, this is going to be great. Come on, cookie. So we took her with us into the, into the wilderness and, you know, the first day we hiked, I, you know, we were only hiking five to eight miles a day. So we had this big troop of us and we all hike, we hike the first day and we, we camp out the first night. And now we're, you know, eight miles from civilization and we're planning on doing like a big 30 mile loop or whatever. And, uh, and we wake up the next morning and Cookie won't move. Like oh, she no. just will not get up and won't walk oh, and we're god. Like, oh my god she's so sore like her muscles are so sore from from walking all this way and she because every step she took she was just shaking like we could just watch her legs shaking uh, so we all took turns giving her massages oh uh, massaging all of her legs but we had to keep hiking like we had to even you know we had to either hike out with her or just keep going on our trip we were like well let's just keep going on our trip she's just got sore muscles and I'm like the slowest hiker, backpacker in the world. So I was always in the back of the trail. So I was just, it was me and Cookie in the back. And I just oh, had God. to force her to keep walking. And um, it's, 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 a, it's a real hike. Like in that, it, it, there's a lot of elevation changes and there's also lots of river crossings. And she would not move. It, it, it was so, I was forcing this dog to keep moving. Oh, I just kept getting worse and worse. But then we get into camp our second night after forcing this dog to walk another five to eight miles. And we set up camp, and then finally, one of us looks over, and we realize it's not sore muscles. Every one of her pads has ripped open on the bottom oh, of her God. feet. Oh, God. So we had forced her to walk on ripped open pads for eight miles, and we just could oh, not. No. And she's bleeding, and her feet oh, are God. just falling apart. And there's actually a part in Call of the Wild where they talk about his, his poor pads right. you know, not oh. being tough enough. And we, and I we were we felt now we had to hike out with her, right. so luckily you know when you're backpack one of the the tricks of you always bring duct tape and you wrap it around like your Nalgene bottles. So we pulled all this duct tape off and we had to duct tape her feet together because that was all we had. Oh my and god! Course, yeah, and we 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 gave an, we gave ourselves an extra day. We stayed an extra day, just hopefully you know hoping that she would heal. But then we just had to wrap her feet up and walk out with her. And then we also we took a sleeping pad. And we could carry her between two of us. You know, we're all, each of us are carrying like forty Holy pounds shit. of our own weight. So we had to carry her out. But you know what? She was she. 
was by the end of the trip, she was like still tongue out, happy, right. and always like willing to make it. And like she really was Dogs, the greatest man. dog ever. Oh yeah, they don't God. stop. Yeah. That's why I kept reading this book and being like, when that you know, when when Buck finally finds the love of his life and that one guy, it was like, right. yeah, if you if you love dogs, they will love you back no matter how right. awful you treat them. They just keep coming back for more. They're just like vessels of love. Oh, right. Cookie. Oh, that's 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 both a great and horrible story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. All right. Well, Poor on that cookie. note, <sighs> on to Call of the, the Wild. How, wait, hold on. How did you get the tape off of her feet without ripping her feet apart? Well, that was the thing. We we eventually took her to you know we came home and we went to the vet right away right. and let them deal with it. But I I think they ended up you know the the duct tape wasn't really sticking. It was more like we were doubling it up, so it was just like a. a like a glove, a basically. Oh, right. Uh, but then we found out that they do make dog uh, sh- uh, yeah, shoes. Yeah, yeah. Like, they make yeah. little things that we should have uh, looked into before we went backpacking with yeah, our, whenever, our golden retriever. Oh, so sad. Whenever we go to um, Sedona, we always see dogs hiking with folks. And, you know, it's always, Sedona's a, it's tough hiking. It's all, you know, there's a lot of scuttling and rocks and shit and lots of uh, sharp things. And there's always a dog hiking along with, um, you know, with, with gloves on his sheet. Yeah. Always, yeah uh-huh. and, and they're just running around looking uh-huh. happy. And I'm like, I don't want to be doing this, but that dog seems to be having a good time. <laughs> hey everybody, this is Ryder from Literary Disco. Today's episode is brought to you in part from HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. And I believe Julia has some personal experience with that. Oh, yes. You want to tell us all about that, Julia? I didn't know you still cooked, Julia. Well, I thought you foraged in the yard for your uh, food. <laughs> well, let's just, um, let me, just for some context, uh, here's here's a conversation that happened between me and my husband immediately after I cooked the food. He was not home. I called him and I was like, hey, where are you? And he was like, oh, I'm in the driveway. And I said, Oh, that's great because I have done something I have never done before. And he said, cook dinner before we got home. Like he got it immediately. (laughs) (laughs) In one guess. So I was mad, but also how can I be mad? Because that is what I had done. So (laughs) anyway, um, HelloFresh sent me this box. Um, I think, you know, you guys all know what it is at this point, but it was fun. You know, you get a box. It's got all their ingredients all wrapped up for you all nice then you follow a little card telling you exactly what to do um and then you have your dinner and this was it was I was excited because the meals in it were more adventurous than what I would do in my like sad late night cooking which spoiler alert is usually macaroni Uh, (laughs) mine mine is a kind bar dipped in nutella oh that sounds (laughs) good um (laughs) <laughs> I got um, this really good Korean bulgogi dinner, which is, you know, it was like ground beef and this really good sauce. And my test was like, can I make this faster than it would be delivered to my house? Um, and I did. It was about 25 minutes and that, that was it. It was really easy. So you guys oh, should. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, HelloFresh wants you to know like the meals are really simple. Check. Oh, they also had a box. I really appreciate this. A box on the card that was like, are you too lazy to peel these cucumbers this way? It's okay. You don't have to. You can just chop them up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, does it come with the does it come with dessert? 
No, it doesn't. But they do have a wine pairing club that I haven't done yet, but it's totally not out of the question. Um, so yeah, it's simple, it's easy and enjoyable. And uh, my favorite part, honestly, is that you don't really get to stay in your comfort zone. Every week or whatever you get the box, you're going to try three different new meals. All right. So for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com slash literary disco 80 and enter literary disco 80. So HelloFresh.com slash Literary Disco 80 and enter Literary Disco 80. And then what do you get for that? You get $80 off. So that's the equivalent of eight free meals or $20 off your first four boxes, however you want to slice it. HelloFresh sounds delicious, simple, and enjoyable. And look, we've been telling you guys about good books for years. We're not branching off into food. <laughs> Listen, I'm That's our next podcast. 90% <laughs> of the time that... I'm reading a book. I'm also pinging out or drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might as well be cooking as well. Yeah. All right. So when he was 21, Jack London spent a year seeking his fortune during the gold, the Klondike gold rush. Uh, but it was a total bust. He contracted scurvy. But the experience would inspire a literary output that made him one of the most successful writers of his time. And in 1903, he published The Call of the Wild, a short novel that launched into fame and has become an enduring classic. It's the story of Buck, a happy-go-lucky St. Bernard and Shepherd mix, who is dognapped and shipped off to the Yukon, where he's beaten mercilessly and forced into a harsh life of dog sledding every day and uh, fighting off competition from other meaner dogs. And as the novel progresses, Buck grows from a domesticated sweetheart to an animal of unrivaled strength and power as he begins to heed the call of the wild. What'd you guys think? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to evaluate this honestly on like a good bad scale because it's, it just kind of is what it is. It's an right. anthropomorphic <laughs> tale of a dog and all of its feelings that is completely <laughs> invented in Jack London's mind. Um, and it's just ridiculous, but it's a nice, I guess, window into history of, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this sounds like the life of a dog in this time period, because it's so, it's so far from our current understanding of a pet, right. you know, um, and that a dog could both be a pet and move into, you know, like a working situation. And then I guess become a wild animal i don't know if any dog has ever had that particular journey but it seems plausible I mean, we don't really think of our dogs as wild animals right so like our right. this book is a great you know at least it raises the curiosity like just how far is the animal on our couch from a beast that would rip other dogs faces off if put in the right situation totally well i mean i i'm often um with my own dogs like there's always that one night where i'll be laying in bed and i'll wake up to pee or whatever and i'll be walking back into bed without any pants on and i'll surprise whatever dog i've had and suddenly the wolf is there you know and i'm <laughs> like oh yeah i sleep with a wild animal on my fucking bed this is absurd this at any point in the night my cocker spaniel could eat my face um but I, you know the, 
so like I when I was a kid, I never got down with these sort of like adventure books and stuff. Like I know writer that you did. I just never really was into it. And Jack London's writing, um, I mean, it's it's not just anthropomorphizing dogs; it's anthropomorphizing men. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> What and, does that, that makes mean? much sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know what I mean, right? Like uh, all of a sudden it's like you're either a noble or you're a savage or you're a noble savage and you know, it's about the sure. the the conflicts of of nature versus nurture, all these sort of, you know, big ticket items in Jack London's work, but overall always nature nature wins. Uh, to build a fire by Jack London is an amazing piece of work. That that I I love because it actually is about the frailty and the stupidity of man. Um, I, I, I've also never really liked any book where an animal has human thoughts, like not even Jaws. Like there, there are parts of Jaws where you get the point of view of, of the, uh, the shark. of the shark. And I'm like, come on, man. All shark is thinking is food, 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 food. Um, if it's thinking at all, if it's thinking at all. Right now, of course, dogs are part of the human condition. Like they, they have been with us for a very long time. And so there are some things about dog behavior that we know. There are some things about dog behavior that remain um, unknown to us. But the, the, the parts that are so visceral still is like, you know, the, when there's a, someone beating a dog, hitting it with a club, all these things like, oh man, it, you know, it's really infuriating and upsetting. But then the sections where it's the the interscene politics of the dog world, I'm like, okay, I, I don't, like, let me, uh, I gotta get beyond this. Like, you can't, you can't tell me about the petty jealousies of Spitz. I just don't care. <laughs> wow, guys, I am so surprised. Wow. I could not have loved this book more. <laughs> I, I thought for sure you guys would be all over this. Wow, especially you, Julia. I didn't hate it. All right. I, I, I liked it, but I I love it so much. Whoa! Yes, I was right. like, I well, okay. Here, to be fair, I totally went in with low expectations. Like, right. I okay, I, All I, right. I, 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 we, I, I think we've like you know talked a little bit about Jack London before and 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 White Fang and the the animal POV stuff. So I was like, yeah, I was rolling my eyes for about twenty or thirty pages, but then well, the, just, the book's only eighty pages long. I know, and then <laughs> so I was, you rolled, you well, rolled your eyes good. for half the novel. I know. And then I could not get enough of it. I was so on board. I was like, fuck yeah, you know, attack spits that evil dog or Fritz or what you know, all, I was so into all the stuff that you're 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 saying was ridiculous. Like and maybe I knew it was ridiculous and that I just I don't know. But I I I loved this book so much. And like I by the end of it I was like, yep, this is there's a reason that this is such a popular book. I mean it's it's been around forever and it still speaks to I I, I think anybody who's ever owned a dog or looked at a dog or um but yeah no, I mean you know I, it, it does have its appeal for the yes that's exactly what I think of my dog feelings right uh but I, I guess more than that I mean more than that I, I I started to see it as a great example of nature writing and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really you know beyond the sort of I mean as a fictional exercise like getting into the mind of a dog is pretty uh it, it is kind of ridiculous but in its very ridiculousness like he takes it very seriously and yes uh you know 
like there, there are these passages that I would, I would mark and I mean, put notes in the back where I was, you know, essentially like, what, what did I, I was like, God, this is such meaning exclamation point, you know, well, he's finding all this existential angst in a puppy, you know, like I was definitely mocking it, but then the, there's, okay, I here here, maybe this is the way to think of it. He has a romantic view of dogs and, and a romantic view of uh, a, 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 a romantic way of approaching the story, but he has a decidedly unromantic view of nature itself. Yes, nature sure. is, is harsh and it's brutal. And you know, the, the law of the club and fang as he calls it. And I really appreciated that. Um, you know, I wasn't surprised to find out after the fact that, that, that Jack London was an atheist and um, and a socialist too, uh, and but but the the way that he confronts nature or, or or writes about a confrontation with the sort of meaninglessness of nature really struck a chord with me, um, and and that there's value in confronting that meaninglessness, and um, I don't know, I really enjoyed that, and and I also enjoyed the prose itself. I thought it was incredibly yeah. well written. It's it's you high gotta read to build a fire. Morgan. Oh, I know, I have yeah. to. It's to so build, good. To build a fire is amazing, but yeah. to to go to your nature writing, um, this is the chapter, the toil of trace and trail. Um, it was beautiful spring weather, but neither dogs nor humans were aware of it. Each day, the sun rose earlier and set later. It was dawn by three in the morning and twilight lingered till nine at night. The whole long day was a blaze of sunshine. The ghostly winter silence had given way to the great spring murmur of awakening life. And then it goes on. Uh, oh, from, so good. from every hill slope came the trickle of running water, the music of unseen fountains. All things were thawing, bending, snapping. The Yukon was straining to break loose the ice that bound it down. It ate away from beneath. The sun ate from above. I mean, it's beautiful, rich, yeah. amazing writing. And that in those sections, absolutely, I'm with it. But then, you know, then it's like, and then Buck looked at Spritz and thought, I must fight you to the death or whatever. Like, yeah, come on. Spitz, not Spritz. <laughs> Spritz is not threatening. <laughs> well, also, why you got to give the mean dog the Jewish name? Why you got to name him Spitz? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, here, here's a here's here's a passage that where it gets to the real like you know a little bit overwrought sections, and such is the paradox of living. This ecstasy <laughs> comes when one is most alive, and it comes as a complete forgetfulness that one is alive. This ecstasy, this forgetfulness of living, comes to the artist caught up and out of himself in a sheet of flame. It comes to the soldier war mad on a stricken field and refusing quarter, and it came to Buck leading the pack, sounding the old wolf cry, straining after the food that was alive and that fled swiftly before him through the moonlight. I mean, yeah, like that's, that I, but you know what? I, 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 I yeah, I, I think as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old <laughs> reading that, I, I would love that stuff. Um, but I also like philosophically, you know, when you think about, like when we think about nature writing, okay, like, I don't know, you, you think of Thoreau, and it's like, well, the dude was in a cabin, you know, what, 10 miles from civilization or right. whatever, and, he, and, he's, and he's writing all these deep thoughts, and it's like, you're not really confronting nature, you're just sort of no. simplifying your life, and whereas somebody like, something like this, like the world that's presented here is really, it does feel brutal and harsh in a way that I think was reflective of how it actually was, and I think that the, 
the kind of thinking that that inspires, I mean, my experience of being alone, my experiences of being alone in the wilderness, it's terrifying. You know, there's mm. always terrifying moments when you just realize like, oh shit, if I lost my knife right now, or if my, you know, if I lost one of my shoes, like I'd be screwed. Uh, you know, right. if, I, if I run out of food or if, you know, uh, you know, and, and that, that terrifying, those terrifying experiences and moments, um, are really pretty wonderful and, and, and profound. And I actually cherish them as some of the best moments of my life. And, uh, like reading this book made me like, Jesus, I need to go camping again. Like I need to get out there and like, you know, so much of our lives <laughs> wow. are, are this See, sort this of Disney-fied is, tracks is, of existence. What? This is where we part ways, Mr. Strong. Yeah. <laughs> because my idea of camping is a Westin where they don't have room service after 11. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> but like, so I, I've been to the part of the Yukon um, where this takes place. So Skagway in the Yukon. I've been there. Um, but I went there on a really huge I say, cruise, ship. cruise ship. <laughs> yes, I knew it. I knew it. Right. And we, I had a great time, and then we had some crab, and we took a train up into the Yukon territories, and we had a great time, and we got back on the boat. So I've been to the Yukon, and I've seen the fragility of nature and man, which meet up when there's a sale on Tanzanite at the, <laughs> at the marina shops in beautiful downtown Skagway now. Hmm. Well, I'm somewhere between you guys. Like, I want to be more outdoorsy than I am. Or it's like, it feels like something like that you get to when you have time, like a vacation or a weekend rather than like part of life. Right. But yeah, of course, as a kid, I wanted to wander into the woods and become whatever the little girl version of that, you know, wild dog is. <laughs> you know what? Every, who doesn't? Isn't that not the most, like, natural well, Todd doesn't, curiosity? apparently. I don't. No. Yeah, Todd doesn't. I've I got an answer a lot of for you, Julia. don't anymore. I, Jews. I think a lot, that Jews sad. don't want to do it. No, I think, it's just, I think it's just that we're getting, you know, yeah, I mean, so so the problem with Jack, or the, 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 the way we can... Clearly, what we can see about Jack London now is that he was operating on this like civilization and uncivilization, uh, you know, spectrum that we now can easily dismantle, right? Like the right. idea of like, and that's it's such a, a white European guy's perspective on how the world is, right? And it, but and there's this whole tradition of that sort of frontier mentality and the the wilderness, and uh, but I have to say, like. Uh, whether you buy into like civilization versus uncivilization or whatever that dichotomy is, there is something about um, the fact that our lives are so safe and controlled and predictable. And what this book brought, made me yearn for is something a little you know, less predictable and a little scary and, uh, and physical. You know the rea- the physical realities. We we uh, we spend so much of our lives avoiding physical realities. It's like, how often does weather in California actually intrude on our plans or our lives? Um, and I I think that there's there's a there is an existential shift that 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 occurs the less you experience reality, the less you experience physical nature. And I I yearn for that. I think it's bad for us that we don't get to live in the real world that much. Um, well, I think we're let- worse off for it. Let me uh, let me quote the words of Jack London here. 
But in spite of this great love he bore John Thornton, and we're in the, the point of view of Buck right now, the dog. But in spite of the great love he bore John Thornton, which seemed to bespeak the soft civilizing influence, the strain of the primitive, which the Northland had aroused in him, remained alive and active. Faithfulness and devotion, things born of fire and roof, were his. Yet he retained his wildness and his wiliness. He was a thing of the wild, Ryder. Come in for the <laughs> wild to sit by John Thornton's fire, rather than a dog of the soft Southland, stamped with the marks of generations of civilization. Yeah. Yeah, it's hokey, right? It's a, it's 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 definitely like it's a simplification. It's an oversimplification. But I, like on the flip side, I remember when Cheryl Strayed's Wild came out, um, mm-hmm. and there, I read an essay, and I'm I'm not, I'm not gonna remember right now who wrote it, but it was it was a criticism of the book, or it wasn't actually a criticism of the book. It was so much as it was a criticism of the criticism that was saying that 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 was not a nature writing book. That, right, I remember you know, that. Yeah, that it was instead a, a sort of self help personal memoir about you know uh, her life and the sort of social personal development that she didn't the the point of that book was to tell her her story of you know overcoming the grief of losing her mother and her drug addiction and all the things that were going on in her life and that it was that the 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 hiking the trail was actually just a means to sort of self-empowerment or or for this cultural commentary on her place in, in America as a woman at the time and all that stuff but it's not the same as like a book that aims to actually just reflect on nature the way that like Annie right. Dillard's um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek or uh, there's a, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole other strain of literature that is just about this encounter with nature and the value of encountering nature. And I agree, like we don't really get that that much anymore. People don't write about that too much anymore. Um, uh, I, I think mostly because we're, we look at books as cultural products. And so right now we're obsessed with culture, you know, and there's so many, cultures that that haven't been written about and subcultures and and so we're we're not in a time of nature writing right now like that's kind of old-fashioned uh and reading this book really made me want to read more nature writing um because it, it, it there's something nice about like this book actually made me feel like I had taken a backpacking trip um mm. and that's a cool thing like to be able to have a a, a journey through literature that can can bring that. So I went this last summer to um, the Breadloaf Environmental Writers Conference. Oh, it was right, just like right. a weekend long uh, writers retreat type thing. And it was fascinating because I've always liked nature writing and love science writing. And I, you know, as a nonfiction person, I was like, is some, this something I want to get into or dabble in or whatever? So I went. Um, and it was great. And all the writers were great and so nice and just consummate professionals because a lot of nature writers end up, you know, they're journalists, right? They're right. reporting. Um, and honestly, like, <laughs> this has got to be the hardest time in history to be a nature writer because this is a moment of fucking panic. Right. Like it was a 100% across the board, like we're all writing about climate change, period, the end. It mm-hmm. is affecting everything i mean like i think people really think of that think of climate change as like oceans and weather but you know your backpacking trip is affected by climate change your food is affected by climate change so 
um, and on and on and on. So it is, <laughs> I came away being like, I both want to read and write more um, in this genre. And also like that is a commitment to being sad and like facing this greater reality that's happening right now that is just extremely depressing. Like at least if you're a political writer, which I would also guess is very difficult. Like there are these <laughs> markers, you know, like every election is a marker of like this sense real or false of progress or change or whatever. But when you're writing about a species dying in a, a species of insect dying in a forest and literally no one cares and you're like the only person who's writing about it and you're going to have like 1000 readers total who already agree with you. Like that is a depressing feel. Um, and Jack London, to bring it back to the book, like one thing that I love about this writing and all, you know, animal writing of this era is that it's like he fucking hates human beings. Right. And I think that is so <laughs> yeah, great. He's a real, he's and, a like, nihilist deserved. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like there's this one set of characters who are like just idiots taking a dog slow trip that they are unprepared for and they don't know anything. Oh, basically the Tarzan in the book? Tarzan's parents, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> what? Tarzan's what? parent Tarzan's parents. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> and uh I'm gonna spoil it, like they just are so stupid. And and yeah, they introduce this female character and you're like, Oh, is this the one who's gonna be nice to him? No. And Jack London's like, No, she's a stupid fucking idiot. <laughs> and then <laughs> And then they drive yeah, over the ice fragile. and they all they all drown. Right. Um, the dogs, the people, whatever. And I was like, yeah, this this is a, a bleak worldview. Um, and of course, there's one nice person as there always is. But, you know, I always liked those. I think that was like the dark heart of, you know, me as a kid liked books that were like, yeah, most people are terrible. And this <laughs> this really offers that up. Like, well, that's like why, nature writing does now. That's why Jack London gets banned a lot. So he doesn't get banned for uh, thematic things in the book necessarily. Like Call of the Wild has been banned for over and over again for 120 years. What? what? And huh. Because of his sort of nihilistic view of humanity and his anti-God stance. And also for his personal politics because he was a socialist and all these things. Um, but, you know, there is a lack of God in this book. This is a book about the power of nature in something else written like this. At some point, someone would say, God save these animals, but the animals are like, ah, oh, fuck, here comes the club. Um, right. So, and, and so when you can, when you think about that, like uh, this is the, the other key thing, I think Jacqueline compared to other nature writing is that he's writing fiction. And so when we, we read nature writing now, it's nonfiction. Nonfiction, yeah. So, like, you know, Terry Tempest Williams or Rachel Carson or any of these people, they're writing conservation nonfiction, essentially. Um, whereas Jack London is saying, hey, I'm going to write about the natural world and, and what happens in it. I, I just actually read a, um, a great book uh, by a writer named Peter Heller. I reviewed it in, um, in USA Today called The River. And it's about um, two young men who are uh, canoeing up um, rivers up through uh, Canada and they encounter just a huge conflagration and how they get through this giant fire. And then also they, they, they encounter a, a couple that's been fighting and the woman has been injured. And you don't know if the husband beat her or what happened. 
but it's it's a very short, very poetic book. It's maybe 215 pages long. And it's actually, the, the parts of it that I really enjoyed are actually not so dissimilar, really, in its reverence for nature as Jack London is in the sections that we read, where you have to respect the natural world because the natural world has its own rules and it doesn't it doesn't care about your emotional complexity like yeah. things are yeah. gonna burn you know and and yeah, that's what i love i love that yeah and that's that's really cool and so if you're interested in that sort of stuff listeners this sort of um look at at the the world of nature but in a fictional scope the river by pete heller is a great example of it in in modern day literature. I believe in USA cool. Today, Todd Goldberg called it stunning, dot, 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 an achievement, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, hoping for that blurb on the back of the book. Huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm gunning for you. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you know, Julia, going back to what you were saying about, you know, contemporary uh, fiction sort of addressing climate change, I would argue that that, that, that that's all, always kind of been there. You know, I mean, obviously it's, we're in panic mode, like you said, but even in this book, uh, there, you know, the, the end of, I think one of the first chapters is, is thus as token of what a puppet thing life is, the ancient song surged through him and he came into his own again. And he came because men had found a yellow metal in the North. And because Manuel was a gardener's helper whose wages did not lap over the needs of his wife and diverse small copies of himself. So there's a criticism already built into this book about, you know, man's exploitation, humans, sorry, man's, <laughs> humans' exploitation of natural resources. And, you know, you, you find that in Moby Dick, too, right? Like, Moby Dick is about the, the industrialization of the ocean as much as yeah. anything else. And um, I feel, like, I I feel like almost all nature writing you know, from 19th century, 20, early 20th century, always was about whether they, they weren't necessarily arguing for conservation, uh, explicitly, but they were indicating that there's, there's a problem here, right? That the, 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 the progress, the human progress and human culture, cultural achievements and scientific achievements are also, uh, damaging something and, 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 and hurting something that is fragile. And, um, that, I don't know. I think he like it's always been there, um, and I, 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 I do wish. I think Todd, you, your, your point is exactly right on. Like, there's not much. There, there is a lot of nonfiction nature writing being written, but you don't read much fiction these days in in this vein. Um, so uh, let's write it. Yeah. <laughs> or and I think writer, I, I, I totally agree. And I think what is maybe it was like the child in me reading this, but like you know, what seems to be going away more and more is man versus nature and nature wins. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Now we're just like, yeah, we destroyed everything. Right. Uh, we hate ourselves, you know, rather oh, than like right. Buck, <laughs> Buck has the opposite journey, right? He returns to nature. He rips out several people's throats. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. Yeah. You know? He takes and down a moose what I want. and a bear. Yeah. Oh my yeah, god! When he kills yeah. a bear, and it's just like a sentence. It's like, oh, he took out a brown bear. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like a dog took out a bear. That's the coolest <laughs> thing ever. And then, of course, the the Native Amer or not the Native Americans, the First Nations, because it's Canada, right? Yeah, they sure. the the Indians come and kill uh, Buck's man, and yeah, then he was... becomes one one with the wolves at the end. It's a very strange book. Well, you know, I found it interesting that at the end he sort of becomes myth. You know, yeah. it's like, it's almost as if he transgresses from 
like this human domesticated control, you know, guy to this wild animal. And then he transcends even the wild animal physical right. reality into this like eternal myth, wolf god right. thing. And I thought that trickster. was actually, yeah, he's like a trickster <laughs> legend. I thought that was really cool. Uh, and in a weird way, it sort of, it sort of brings it full circle. So it's not, it, 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 it made it more interesting to me than just like, and then he ran, ran off and joined the, the wilderness. It's like he, he came full circle again to the world of humans and stories. And the book that we're reading is, is, is a story. And like, I think, I think that's a really clever way for, for London to say like, yes, this encounter with nature is important and da, 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 But ultimately like we still need stories. We do, we, we, we want myths and legends and that's what animates us. That's how we, because you know, the whole thing, the call of the wild is this like, you know, this kind of cheesy idea that like he has this natural instinct that he's feeling. And it even has like flashbacks to a previous life. It seems like that right. Buck is having with like a caveman leading him by a fire. You know, those yeah. passages, it's really weird. Yeah. It keeps recurring and it's so cheesy and hokey, but at the same time, it's a, it's, it's a nice, there is some truth to the idea that we have stories that we, we tell each other as uh, all cultures that, that, that prioritize wildness and prioritize, uh, uh, be, being in nature and um, and the value of like those sort of godlike myths and legends to animate us to take risks or to be uh, out there in the world in in a you know physical dangerous environment. I don't know. There's like there's it was really clever. It was much smarter than I thought it was going to be. Aww. Or I love well, Jack London. Now I'm gonna read everything by Jack London. Yeah, I'm or, shocked. I'm honestly shocked you've never read him because. I feel like the character in literature you most relate to is Buck. <laughs> well, as as oh, Joan Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Um, I just think that Jack Lennon didn't know how to end his book. And so he's like, Buck now runs with the wolves no, forever. No, man, he's mid That was seated. Yeah, you're stupid. <laughs> Finally, 145 episodes in. Before Julia just outright says Julia, Julia's just like, you're a moron. I've been holding back. That's what the entire book is about. Is And it's also the title. I know. The call yes. inside him. Yeah. Uh, Julia starts leaving reviews on iTunes. Goldberg is a moron. One star. I have enough. Signs her own name. Well, I kind of... I kind of like the idea, actually, that um, in those weird flashbacks, so he's sitting by a fire, and like he sees a man that's sitting across from him, and then that man becomes other men. And you're like, oh, the the wolf DNA in him goes back to the beginning of time. Like, all animals are connected by this thread that pulled, pulled tight goes to the Australopithecine era or something. Yeah. Not that Australopithecine was known to Jack London in 1903. Um, well, you know, apparently he, he only carried two books with him, and one of them was Darwin's Origin of Species. Oh. So he was very invested in science and, and evolution. Yeah. So that that is sort of a cool idea. But I got to tell you, like, <laughs> the idea of, like, the eternal wolf, the trickster, all that shit, it makes me crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. But it's always made me crazy, like, the mysticism of the wolf. Like, it's a, it's a fucking dog. I mean, and I love dogs, as you know. We started this conversation off by talking about my poor dead dog, Scout. But it's, it, 
like there's no mysticism with this dead animal. Well, it's a, hold on, hold on. I wouldn't say it's mysticism. I mean, that's the, that's what I liked about it is that it wasn't spiritual. It wasn't supernatural. Um, it, I, I, I think he's, he's, he's arguing for something biological and evolutionarily. That primal. energy persists. Okay. And that, yeah. And I think, but I think the, I, I don't know, like, don't you think that there are irrational impulses you have? Like, you know, like why we have desires for certain foods or sex, for instance, like I, you know, like it would, life would be a lot easier if you didn't have a lot of the random desires and urges that you do, but you feel them and you, you act on them because you kind of have to. And I, you know, like recognizing that as, 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 as something essential to being a part of this earth is important to me you know like and that's not like a spirit that's like a bio i feel biological impulses that i can't help you know like all the time and that goes back it does feel like it goes back to something primal and generational that you know i would love to not feel them sometimes but i can't help it and i think that right. that's that's what i relate to yeah i'm i'm all buck. right you, just call me could, buck from now on you've yeah con- you've convinced i knew me. it I've, I've changed my mind you've convinced me okay i agree yeah. cool i think it's really cool. And as a cat person, I feel like I may be a little closer to this since dogs are so domesticated. <laughs> but sometimes I look at my cats and I'm like, a wild animal lives in my house. You yeah. know what I mean? That And that's an A, why? Why do I want that? Right. And B, you know, how do we like reconcile that? You know, that we've got this wild creature with all their like needs and history and yeah. emotions if they have them, you know? In our homes, like really, that's it is really. I weird. think that's a big reason that people have pets. They don't say it, but there's, you know, it's beyond loyalty and comfort. It's right. like yeah. it's great. It's a way of bringing nature in. And, and also, that's why that's a good reason why so many horse girls are formed in the world, right? <laughs> like, right. it's the connection with you know, it's the freedom, it's the connection with the outdoors and this animal that can you know bring you into it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I wish I, I didn't feel the way I do about dogs because this last week of my life would have been a lot easier, um, you know? And that's, it, it is such a curious thing. You know, my wife and I, we don't have kids like you guys do. And so animals have always been that other thing between us, you know? Um, and it's, an, it's, a, it's a uniquely human dynamic um, to not have another human, but to bring an animal into your life. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify. Um, and I don't know if Jack London necessarily does it, but <laughs> he, he certainly asks large questions. Um, and so this was a, an interesting time to read The Call of the Wild. And you know, the, here's the nice thing, folks. If you want to read it, um, it's for free online all over the place. You can, you can download a PDF. Um, it's in the public domain now, so there's also free audiobooks of it. Um, so that's cool. I'm al- it's always neat to be able to find stuff that's important. Um, you know, important to the history of a of our culture that doesn't cost you any money, um, and so all, which is true for all of Jack London at this point. All of this stuff is public domain. In fact, writer, I'm not. I, I'm just saying, the time for you to adapt the Call of the Wild, where you play Buck, the time <laughs> is, is now. now. <laughs> Are you thinking animated, or you think I actually run around in all fours? I'm thinking live action. I think live action. (laughs) And and I, of course, would play Spitz, and uh, and Julia would play Mercedes. (laughs) No, come on, you're Mercedes in any. You get tired and want to ride on the sled. I dare you. I would. I do get very tired. (laughs) 
Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.